Welcome to the Physician Negotiator Podcast, where no decision is left to chance. With your host, Doc of All Trades. Hey, welcome back. And today on the show, we have Dr. Brent Lacey. Dr. Brent Lacey is a gastroenterologist, and he is the founder of the scopeofpractice.com. Dr. Lacey, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. You know, in a crowded space, you have done an amazing job outlining the steps needed to take to have a a very successful launch of a medical career. Um, Your website focuses on personal finance, practice management, and early career strategies for medical professionals. Um, I've been doing this for about three years or so. I'm familiar with all the physician bloggers, and I just got to tell you, your website is excellent, and it's very, very thorough. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a lot of work, but it's it's been it's been a lot of fun too. And you know, I could tell you personally, um, I've been the amount of effort and time it takes to build a website like yours. Um, I, I can't even imagine how many how many hours you spent at this. So for that, I commend you. Um, I think your writing is very clear. It's very concise and is very linear. And that's really, really, really hard to find. That's what I struggle with more than anything else is trying to be a linear thinker. And uh, I think the the biggest challenge that physicians have is financial literacy. And so we hone in on our craft. We, we, we learn how to practice medicine, but we just struggle with financial literacy. And I think if you look at your website, if you were to go through it from beginning to end, I think you would have a good uh, foundation. So the question is, how did you get such an amazing foundation? Well, so my my uh, journey is actually very fortunate. My parents were very good at, at, you know, dealing with money and very savvy, um, you know, from really ever since I was a little kid. And so I remember when I was, when I was young, you know, doing, uh, budgets with my dad when I was, you know, really young and, you know, learned how to do a checkbook, learn how to do uh, mutual fund investing, learn how to build spreadsheets when I was, you know, in my teens. So I, I was fortunate to grow up with, uh, with a lot of education and then, you know, really sought to try to continue that during, uh, college and med school and and into clinical training with just reading and reading and reading. I mean, I have a couple of bookshelves worth of business books and personal finance books. And so I've just been reading for over a decade now. And, you know, you know, I, we were talking a little bit earlier. One of the things we had, you know, I'd mentioned is that, you know, uh, a long time ago, one of my mentors taught me that if you want to be a, a leader, you've got to be a reader. And I firmly believe that. So, you know, I think that's the number one thing that physicians can do for themselves is, you know, if you're not taught this stuff in medical school, which, you know, you're not, (laughs) Uh, unless you're fortunate to go to one of the five places that has somebody like you or somebody like me teaching this stuff just on their own, um, you know, you got to go out there and read, you know, there's all kinds of sites out there like yours, like, uh, like the scope of practice, uh, you know, and, and just books out there that you can get. I mean, you can get an MBA by just going to Barnes and Noble, spending a couple hundred dollars on, you know, on, you know, the top 20 business books and you'll just know so much. And based upon your parents teaching you, um, how to, how to make a budget, you chose to attend the university of Texas, San Antonio on a Navy scholarship. What, what made you decide to do that? Well, so that was, um, 
that was interesting. So Texas is unique in that they have their own match separate from the national separate from like the national uh, match. So uh, I applied to all the different schools in Texas because that's where I grew up, and so I wanted to you know go to school close to home and. I loved the San Antonio program. I loved the the clinical side of things. I loved the the people that were there and ended up ranking them. Well, I ended up ranking them second, actually, <laughs> as a matter of fact. But I vacillated between them and Houston, 1A and 1B. And then, um, you know, ended up ranking them second, but they ranked me, they ranked me first, I guess. So, <laughs> and I loved it. It was a great place. Now, the one thing that we didn't really get there, and I, I think, you know, you didn't and, and most people don't, is the... Uh, is how to manage a business, how to run your personal finances. And, uh, you know, so that's one of the things that I really wanted to try to do uh, well. And so I spent a lot of time reading and now I spend a lot of time writing about it. No, that's fantastic. Now there's the application and there's the acquisition of knowledge, but then there's the application of knowledge. And, and sometimes it's hard to translate that without a mentor. Now, did you ever have somebody like that in your life to help you um, apply your knowledge? Yeah, I did. And yeah, you know, I'd say my, my biggest mentors over the course of my life have really been my parents. I mean, they've, they've just, I mean, I'm incredibly blessed to have uh, two parents that are just really savvy about this kind of stuff and who are willing to teach me. Um, you know, I was in the Boy Scouts for a very long time. So like 12 or 15 years and very active. And uh, so that's kind of a natural leadership laboratory. So I learned a lot about leadership and how to manage people and how to, you know, how to you know, leverage influence to achieve a goal, uh, a collective goal with a group, but uh, didn't really get any business mentorship until I got to college. And so I had a really cool opportunity. I went to Texas A&M University for undergraduate, um, Gigamax. And when I went to, uh, when I started my junior year, I applied for a position on the leadership team of the the Memorial Student Center, which is the student union there at Texas A&M. And it's the largest student-run student union in the country. We had 1,800 uh, student volunteers. And uh, we had a budget of about $6 million. So I mean, it's a huge, huge operation. And so my junior year, I was selected to be the director for leadership development and service organizations. And then I was uh, selected to be the chief operating officer my senior year. And in that capacity, I got to lead all the programming for the entire student union of Texas A&M for the year. And one of the things that was awesome about that is I got an opportunity to work one-on-one with um, the guy who was the uh, now the director of the student union, uh, a man named Luke Altendorf, who's, uh, one of my great mentors. And, you know, he and I worked one-on-one all year long to shepherd the programming committee, um, you know, through all the different, uh, you know, programming seasons. And I just learned so much from him. Well, one of the things that you think about when you're, um, you know, or the, I guess I should say you really don't think about when you're, um, in medical school and dental school is, just the simplex, the simplicities of running a business. And I'll give you a, just a basic example. Um, so one of the skills that I picked up from Luke that I think has been hugely valuable for me is just how to run a meeting effectively. And you, you think about how many times you've sat in a meeting and you're just sitting there looking at your phone, you're counting the seconds because you're like, this is a waste of time. We're talking about nothing. You know, I could have read this in an email. What are we doing here? You know, so just learning how to run a meeting 
is a very basic skill that I think all leaders and, and business people should have. Um, but that's not something that's natural. It wouldn't even occur to me to seek that out. But um, I had the opportunity to study under someone who was willing to teach me about that and thought it was important that I learned. And so, and so now that's the kind of thing that I have the opportunity to give to others. Now, typically when you are in medical school, you would receive some type of mentorship from an attending or a resident. Did you receive um, something like that? Yeah, our, our program at uh, the Naval Medical Center in San Diego, our internal medicine program had a, a one-on-one mentorship uh, program that they had where they would, at the beginning of your intern year, they would pair up a um, uh, an intern with an attending. And it was either an internal medicine um, uh, doc or a one of the subspecialists. And so um, I, I can't remember exactly the specifics of the program, but I do remember that um, Alyssa... Alyssa Spezial, uh, who was my mentor, she was gastroenterologist and actually very influential in getting me motivated to uh, go for a fellowship in gastroenterology. She and I would meet, I think we met probably every three to six months directly. And, you know, she would, she would ask me some questions about, you know, how do I feel like I'm progressing in my, in my training? Am I, am I getting to where I'm, you know, moving on to the next level? She would offer feedback from my you know, rotation directors and things like that. And, uh, so I definitely learned a lot from that, but, you know, most of what I learned was, was some leadership stuff and, but mostly, mostly just medical things still, even with that, I wasn't getting a lot of direct business or practice management, practical skills. out. Yeah. And, uh, essentially my understanding is I had, I had something very, very similar and my, my mentor was so focused on the medical aspect of, or teaching medicine that they really didn't teach me how to engage in business or uh, what what's what is the what are the qualities of a good of a good company? I, I remember having one conversation with one of my mentors, and I was trying to look for a job when I was a resident, and I would try to bounce ideas off them. And when I would ask them questions directly, they rarely knew the answer because they were most of them were academicians, and uh, I I was more interested in working in private practice, and so. Even then, I was I was pretty lost, and I think it's safe to say that most medical students and or residents get little to no um, financial education and or business education. Well, and I, and I think that's I think that's true, and I think it even goes a step further. Like, what what did you? I mean, did you get any kind of training on how to select the right specialty? How to know what specialty is right for you? I I know I sure didn't. Um, you know, and, and one of the, one of the things that I think is, you know, you know, that is not taught very well is how to make simple decisions like that. Cause we tend to be very, very focused on learning medicine, learning how to be an excellent clinician or how to be, or, or how to do research or how to do surgery or whatever, but all the rest of the stuff we're kind of left to fend for ourselves. Exactly. And so even now I mentor students or residents or SRNAs, and what, when I find my colleagues constantly teaching them about uh, medicine, I'll bring them to the side and try to teach them about business, or I try to teach them about sim- simple choices, like if you live in a rural area versus a city, these are the consequences of that, or you know, if you are going to negotiate a contract, you need to basically have three or four contracts lined up so that you can compare them. And this is how you compare them. 
Um, and when they talk to me, they're like, oh, no one's ever said that to me. And my understanding is most of them will go into, especially um, the younger students will go into their first job. And, and, and if you think about an SRNA, they typically graduate from their uh, program at age 23 to 24. And now they have to make a huge decision as to where they're going to work, how much they're going to get compensated, um, what type of uh, shifts they're going to be working on, and they have no idea to even turn to. So I, I try to give them some kind of insight, but there's very little information out there for them. Well, and we see that we see that in the area of personal finance as well. So you know, people are I would say equally ill-equipped to handle their personal finances. I mean, when I uh, got out of fellowship, I started doing, uh, well, I started a financial discipleship ministry at my church and then realized there's a great need for this at my hospital too. So I started doing some lectures at the, at the hospital and the residents and the students and the nurses would come and even the, the corpsmen, like our, our medical assistants, um, would attend these things. And the, the sheer lack of knowledge, like the, the, the size of the knowledge gap was just absolutely staggering. I remember sitting in a I remember giving a lecture one time on, you know, how to, how to save for retirement. We started talking about, you know, IRAs and 401ks and I mentioned offhand. So yeah, the IRA is basically, you know, how it's treated for tax purposes, but inside you can invest in whatever you can invest in stocks or bonds or mutual funds. And then someone raised their hand and said, what's a mutual fund? I said, Oh my goodness gracious. I didn't realize we needed to back it up that far. So just, just giving people basic vocabulary and taking it down, just drilling it down to the roots. I mean, you know, most people don't need to be experts in, you know, the, you know, a 1031 exchange and, you know, all these, you know, crazy, you know, investment strategies and things. I mean, just the basics of how to do a budget, why to have an emergency fund, the the nature of compound interest, you know, what is dollar cost averaging? Just very, very basic investing concepts will take people so far. And it's amazing how ill-equipped we are as physicians to handle that. I, I kind of feel like the, the financial um, industry tries to purposefully make it a little more complicated than it needs to be. Because um, I remember when I first came out, I I struggled with this myself. And so uh, some, the first thing one of my peers told me is I needed a financial advisor. So I remember uh, looking all, you know, I literally looked up financial advisor and, all over town and I went, I just basically went from building to building. And I remember driving to one big firm and it was a beautiful building, three stories high, all black glass. And I walked in through these huge doors and sat on this big leather couch. And the guy looked at me and he said, uh, what's your net worth or how much, you know, how much do you want to invest? I said, well, right now I don't have anything. And he's like, call me when you have $500,000. And then that was the, <laughs> that was the end, <laughs> that was the end of our, uh, of our exchange, you know? And, and I said, wow, how can this be so complicated? So I did what you did and I just started reading and reading and reading. And, uh, eventually I, um, I figured it out. Um, what's interesting is the reception. So you, what, what type of reception did you get with the people that you've been teaching? Oh, it's overwhelmingly positive. I mean, there's, it, it, I usually get one of a couple of things. I usually, I usually get either that people have sort of a, a baseline level of knowledge that, you know, they, they understand more or less how, what's going on with their student loans. Maybe they don't really have a concrete plan. And then just sitting down and, and talking to them gives them some 
concrete steps that they can take and an action plan to go, okay, we'll do this first. And then in six months, we're going to have achieved this. So then this is the next step. And then this is the next step after that. And then two years later, you're debt free. Or uh, the other thing that I get a lot is people go from a feeling of hopelessness to hopefulness. It is amazing. I mean, the the average amount of medical school debt right now, this, this is the most recent statistic I read, is uh, that people graduate with about $200,000 in student loan debt. And that's the average. And that I think is a dramatic underestimate because that's not counting, that's not counting people like me who went to school on a Navy scholarship or who, you know, maybe did MD PhD program or something who come out with zero. So there's a bunch of zeros being averaged in there. Well, that's not really fair. Uh, And then it's also not counting a lot of foreign medical graduates who are coming over here after, you know, you know, having gotten their program paid for in their own country and then coming here to the States. So I think the real number of, if you look at people who actually take out student loans, I think it's probably closer to 250, 300, maybe it's 400. I don't know. But I, I talked to lots of people that have three, four and $500,000 worth of student loan debt from just medical school. And that's just for them. And that doesn't count necessarily undergrad, doesn't count graduate school, doesn't count their spouses. I mean, I work with people all the time that have five, $600,000 between them and a spouse. And, you know, just, you can imagine, you know, if you are sitting on a a required monthly payment of five to $6,000, and that's just to do the bare minimum and have the opportunity to pay off your student loans in 30 years, I mean, that would just be such an ankle weight. It would be so painful. So just giving people uh, some hope and giving them the opportunity to see, okay, there is a way to get through this. There is a way um, you know, to, to battle this debt monster, there is a way to achieve financial success and giving them that hope is, is huge. And the number of people that come out of some of these lectures going, wow, no one's ever sat me down and just talked to me about this. I was just planning on keeping this around forever because I figured I didn't have a choice and now, man, I am fired up. And it's, it's awesome to see that. That is amazing. Um, you know, and on, on the other end of the spectrum, we have physicians who are about to retire and, I think the latest statistic I read was, according to the to the AMA, thirty to forty percent of physicians physicians have less than half a million dollars in their savings account or not in their retirement account, which is a for like a whole year. Or I mean, a whole career worth of of, of uh, earning to have that little amount is just utterly amazing. So I think it it, it spans uh, financial literacy spans all ages, from what I can tell. Absolutely. And I, I've done financial coaching for years and I see as many people with, um, you know, the median household income in America is $50,000 for the, for a household. And I, I see as many people that are making less than that, uh, fighting to stay alive, just paycheck to paycheck as I see physicians. I mean, so, you know, I don't think physicians are immune to any of the typical mistakes that we see people make. As a matter of fact, I, you know, in general, I find that everybody, regardless of income, level makes the same five or six mistakes financially. It's just that physicians make it with more zeros on the end. (laughs) Yeah. I I remember reading one of your articles that says, whatever you do, do not try to get rich quickly. And I thought, I think that's very sage advice. Um, How did you, so how did you learn how to become a financial coach? So, so I actually, I actually learned about it um, through my church. So I don't know if you're familiar with uh, with uh, Dave Ramsey. Sure, I absolutely. Imagine you probably are. Yeah. So um, I taught Financial Peace University. That's his. Um, that's his 
you know, a financial mastery class at my church a couple of times. And then decided I wanted to expand our, our, our ministry at the church. And so, uh, I took three other guys and we went to Nashville for a week for his, uh, financial coach master training. Wow. And we, we had a week long, uh, basically series of classes with, uh, you know, 150 other people from around the country who were all interested in the same thing and just learned about bankruptcy and foreclosures and, you know, basics of coaching and, you know, how to get people, spouses together and budgeting and all this kind of stuff. And so that's kind of how I learned to be a financial coach. And then, you know, honed those skills over time, just meeting with people one-on-one and and doing coachings both, uh, you know, at my hospital and then now also through the scope of practice. And so, you know, what's been interesting to me is see that, people make mistakes in patterns. I mean, it's, it's almost like, it's almost like seeing a syndrome, right? So like sure. you can diagnose somebody with a syndrome based on the pattern of symptoms that they present with. And it's the same thing. You know, I'm like, Oh, this is the, this is the student debt syndrome. Oh, this is the, I can't get my spouse on the same page with me syndrome. You know, it's pretty funny. Oh, you know what? The student debt syndrome, <laughs> that would be a great blog post. So you got to write that one if you haven't already. Okay. I like that. I'll, I'll do that. That's fun. So let me ask you a question. So after you attended uh, Dave Ramsey's university, his fin- what, what, so what did you call it? Financial what university? Financial Peace University. Financial Peace, like uh, not okay. I like, get it. Like, like a, War and um, Peace. War and Peace. Got it. Um, when you finish that four day course, what do you get from that? Do you does it, is there a certification program? Do you get mentorship uh, to follow up after that? How does that work? Yeah, so we had a we had a three month uh, mentorship afterwards with some of with uh, their seasoned like veteran financial coaches who have been doing this for you know fifteen eighteen years. Uh, there, there was a certification. They they have to be careful with what they call it because it, you know if you call it a certification, then it's subject to you know, different medical or not medical, but different education requirements, you know, CEs and that sort of thing. But basically, I mean, basically the most important thing that I got was the knowledge base and then Mm -hmm. the, the practical mentorship, uh, afterwards. So mainly just, just getting the, the skill set developed was really the main value that I got out of that. Right. And, and I'm really careful too, about not, we, we do not give financial advice. This is really for entertainment purposes and, or, to help, you know, get you to the right person to help with your finances or help with your legal requirements or whatever. Um, so, so for example, when I talk about negotiation, ultimately you need to speak to your lawyer, you need to speak to your accountant, you need to make sure all the, the people who are licensed and professionals look over your uh, your contracts and your finances to make sure you're making a good, solid de- decision. Yeah. And what, and what, one of the posts that I wrote here in the last couple of months is called why you need a personal board of directors. Um, I love that post. That was a great post. It's for, it's for exactly the same reason. I mean, you know, you know, I don't, I don't do a lot of my own mechanic work, you know, some, but I mean, you know, cars are basically space shuttles nowadays. So you need someone who's a professional at that. Well, you know, I'm not a tax guy. I have a guy who does taxes for me. I mean, I'm not, I'm not an attorney. I have a guy who does, you know, contract work. I mean, and you've talked about this on your site, you know, the importance of having like, for example, a, an attorney look over a contract with you because right. we're, we're not, we don't, we didn't go to law school. I don't know anything about that. I mean, I know enough to, to know what questions to ask. And then I need to know how to find a person who can, I can trust to put in my corner, who's going to be a professional advisor for me in that area that I'm not a professional at. And I, and, and again, the whole board of directors is, is very, very important. Now you mentioned too, what are the other people that you would think are really paramount to have on your team? 
So, um, well, well, I'd say it kind of depends on, um, you know, what you feel like your shortcomings are. So for me, I'll just be, I'll just be, you know, uh, like full disclosure. Um, I don't use a financial advisor. Like I don't have a CFP that, um, that I work with just as an example. Uh, because like I said, I've been doing a, uh, you know, sort of a DIY strategy for a very long time, but I've been reading this stuff for a decade. So that that's for me personally, but I think a financial advisor is definitely someone that you should consider having Uh, a tax professional or an accountant is huge. Um, For sure. I am not a tax guy. And I'll tell you, honestly, those things change so often that I think it's really valuable to have someone who just, that is their life is knowing the ins and outs of that. Um, I think an attorney is someone that's really important to have because you'll need it. You'll need it at some point, you know, for, you know, setting up a, your business, um, you know, if, you know, looking over a, an employment contract, you know, things like that. So, uh, but financial planner, tax pro attorney, and estate planner, I think is really valuable someone to have. And that could be an attorney, it could be an accountant potentially, but someone who can help you set up your estate so that when you, when you die and you know, your assets get distributed as you like, either to your kids or your, your spouse or, but hopefully not, you know, a giant piece to the government. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, you know, the, you make sure that it's going to go where you want. Um, I think an insurance broker is valuable for, for most folks. Uh, so, I mean, I'm sure you've written on the subject and I know I have that, you know, there are just so many insurance companies that prey on our lack of knowledge. And so mm-hmm. having someone that is not a captive agent, someone who can shop around for a bunch of different companies and find you the best deal is really helpful. And then the other big one I would say would be some kind of a real estate professional. So at a minimum, you know, all physicians are likely to own their own home someday, but I would say a fairly substantial percentage are going to be in a position to invest in real estate also. And so knowing how to navigate the ins and outs of that for tax purposes, you know, like what can you do, what can you depreciate legally and what can't you, um, you know, where do you buy, what, what are the right things to consider as you're, you know, uh, trying to figure out how much of a house can you buy? Do you rent versus do you buy commercial things like that? You know, and I was surprised by the the real estate professional and, and I can't emphasize that enough because part of the problem with being a physician is people are always coming at us with exotic uh, proposals for investments. And I have so many friends that have been burnt um, over the years. And me personally, I actually got involved in a commercial deal back in 2006, just before the real estate crash. And, uh, unfortunately for me, I did not have a, somebody that I trusted. Um, and so things could have gotten a lot worse, but you know, my, my very first two years out, I experienced something like that. So I didn't think that was necessary, but now I am convinced you must have somebody that, you know, somebody that you trust, um, on your side when it comes to real estate. So excellent, excellent, uh, um, suggestion. And for, and for all these advisors, one of the things that I really, uh, try to coach my uh, students and residents on is the the key thing that you want in any advisor is you want somebody who has the heart of a teacher. You want someone who is going to teach you and coach you to make the best decision for yourself. That's why I think of it as a board of directors. You know, you are the CEO of you incorporated or of yourself incorporated or your family incorporated. And so you need people that work 
for you. Right. And so if you've got someone who's just trying to sell you stuff and all they want to do is make money off of you, fire them. You you need to have somebody that you can trust. And that person is going to be someone that after you sat down with them, you learned something, you know, more after talking to them than you did beforehand. And you are getting the answers to the questions to make the decisions you need for yourself. Well spoken. Okay. Let's uh, change gears a little bit here. You wrote an article called top 10 mistakes. Uh, top 10 mistakes physicians make when negotiating their contract. I thought it was an excellent article, clear, concise, very well written. Um, what have you personally seen uh, errors? Like number one, what have you personally seen with physician contracts that are erroneous or you've personally experienced? And what advice do you give maybe the top two things that you think um, physicians and or dentists and or um, nurse professionals need to know about? So I think the number one thing, I think the number one thing I would say is that, and this is true, I think in general of any negotiation or any two-way conversation, and that is the person that is the best prepared, that has the most knowledge tends to come out on top. So if you think about, if you think about that from a standpoint of, well, let's use an example of our everyday lives. So as physicians, when a patient comes in to see us, like for, like for my world, if someone comes in with uh, abdominal pain, I understand abdominal pain at a level of 10 out of 10. And a patient understands uh, abdominal pain at a level of WebMD out of 10, right? Exactly. So, which exactly. is to say, excellent not analogy. Much. <laughs> yeah. So, um, now we're working towards the same goal in that case, right? And that is, but in general, you know, we are, we are operating off of my understanding and my knowledge and my experience to get us towards the endpoint. So, when physicians are trying to negotiate a contract, they really need to take the time to read the contract, to know what's in the contract, and then especially to know how it compares to um, other contracts if, you know, similar specialties. So, you know, talking to other people in your specialty, talking to junior employees at that exact firm, um, talking to people who have been out of practice for a while and say, like, how, how much were they offering you and what kind of guarantees were they offering you when you started, things like that. So the more knowledge you have going in, the better you can negotiate because you know what is reasonable. So you know if they bring you a super lowball offer or have you know work hour requirements or work RVU requirements that are just tremendously outside the bound of normal. So I think that's probably the most important thing. And then I would say the second thing is that I would say is just sort of an overarching thing. And we can get into specifics if you like as well, but just sort of philosophically, as I would say, is being afraid of actually negotiating. So as physicians, you know, we're, we're constantly trying to help people. We're constantly trying to approach every interaction with as much empathy as possible. Uh, or at least, you know, we, we try to, um, and when you're, when you're approaching a business negotiation, you really can't think of it like that. It's not, it doesn't need to be adversarial, but you need to go into it with sort of a dispassionate view of things and say, okay, this is a business transaction in this moment, I'm not trying to get someone to be my friend. I'm not trying to get someone to build a physician patient relationship. I'm trying to see to it that I end up with a fair deal at the end of this. And they're trying to see that they end up with a fair deal out of this too. And so that's what we're trying to work with. And all things, all, all things in a contract are potentially negotiable. And so I think recognizing that is very important and being willing to actually fight for your own 
um, side of the contract is is the second big philosophical thing that physicians need to take in mind. And me personally, I think if you're young uh, and you're coming out of residency, that might be a, a great challenge, even assuming that you're going up against somebody that might be uh, either in a mentor or somebody, let's say you decide to stay in your department, the people that you've been taking orders from now, all of a sudden you have to negotiate with, it could pose a challenge. So in that regard, maybe that might be a situation where you want advice of somebody who can be a, um, who, ne- who can negotiate on your behalf. But like you said, you have to be prepared. If you, you got to know the numbers, um, you have to know what's fair so that if you do use a third party, they can advocate for you. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I'll tell you what's interesting that I've seen over the last, um, I guess I've been hearing about it for probably the last four or five years. It, it's this, you know, we talked about syndromes a second ago. I think new graduates make mistakes in one of two different directions. It's very interesting how this has polarized. One mistake that people make is massively undervaluing themselves. So they go into a contract negotiation prepared to ask, basically prepared to take whatever is offered. And that's a huge mistake. Um, But then I also see people go in with wildly unrealistic expectations. So, um, you know, I'll give you, so I'm joining a group in the, you know, this summer. And uh, I remember talking with uh, one of the, with one of the senior docs there and uh, you know, we were negotiating back and forth and he, he said, listen, I really appreciate that you're coming, you're coming into this with a sensible view of what is realistic to ask for. So he said that, you know, they've had three or four people in the last year that have been uh, seeking jobs with them. And, you know, they were, their, their expectations were just wildly unrealistic. Like, yes, uh, I'm going to come in. I'd like to make $750,000 a year, uh, with, you know, for the first couple of years and then a million dollars after that. Uh, and then I'm going to have, uh, you know, four weeks of call a year, like, wait, on, on what planet do you think we are all living that this is this is the natural order of things, right? I mean, just wildly unrealistic. So it's interesting to see people make mistakes either unrealistically high or unrealistically low. It's kind of interesting. You know, that is fascinating. So I think this is a generational thing. I'm writing an article right now about the different generations of, of uh, physicians and how they behave differently. And um, Robert Dorogosi, he's the physician investor. Are you familiar with him? Uh-huh. Okay, so he wrote an article recently talking about how he has a group of friends that uh, that he's known for years, and as they've aged, they're trying to find replacements. And he said, well, as he's kept in touch with them, he will check in on them from time to time, ask them how they're going. And they said none of them can leave uh, their practice or retire because they cannot find somebody to match their work ethic. So it's it's interesting that that you say that because I'm kind of seeing that with this next uh, generation coming up who, who have these expectations, granted, you do want to have, you know, work-life balance, but you, you can't have them both. You can't, you know, expect to make big bucks and then not work hard. You know, something has to give. That is absolutely a, a great observation. I've observed the same. And so, you know, you and I, uh, you know, I, I think you graduated in really the era before work hour restrictions or, Correct. or right. And I, just barely missed the work hour restrictions myself. So, um, 
it's definitely something I've noticed with the the newer graduates that are coming out. You know, they they typically, you know, if if they're used to training in a place where they only do 12-hour shifts or they only do 14-hour shifts and they have six handoffs in a given day and you know, they have you know, they have all the weekends off or or whatever, you know, it's I, I think it's doing people a disservice by making them think that they're going to be able to maintain the same level of work afterwards. I actually wrote a, I wrote a post last year called debunking the myth that life gets easier when you finish residency, uh, addressing this exact problem. Cause people come yeah, out of that. Yeah, people come out yeah, of I read that article. Yeah. People come out of training thinking, yeah, you know, I'll, uh, you know, they, they, they're thinking I've paid my dues. Now I'm ready to be an attending and work less. And it's not that way in the majority of time, in the majority of cases. You know, the funny thing about that is though, I think if you are a, a brand new graduate and you recognize it, you have such a huge advantage against your peers. Because if you walk into a practice, say, listen, I'm willing to kill it. I'll do whatever it takes. I'm, you know, I'm a junior guy. I'll go to whatever meeting I'll contribute. Um, you're going to, you're going to be a rock star. You're going to skyrocket. You'll probably you know, not only will you be partnered within two years, you'll probably be running the group within five. Absolutely. And that it's, it's so funny that, you know, just having an exceptional work ethic has become something of a superpower just by virtue of the fact that lots of people are ready to try to take it easy. And I, one of the things I always encourage my students and my, my interns, especially. So, you know, the, you remember, you remember intern year, right? Although we all try to forget. Um, but you know, the thing I always tell my interns is look, nobody is going to come out of this. Nobody is going to come to you in July and think, Oh my gosh, this guy is such a bad physician. Every time you screw something up, the only thing that people think is, Oh, it's July. Everybody understands that you're new. Everybody understands that you're inexperienced. The one mistake that you can make is coming in and being lazy or, or, or not, or, or just not caring or just not really paying close attention. And those reputations have a way of following you. And, you know, what I tell my interns is look, what you need to do, if you want to succeed here is you need to come in prepared to assassinate your first month, your, your first month, you need to be here an hour earlier than, than you think you're supposed to. You need to read five more articles a day than you think you're supposed to. You need to be doing every single thing you can to just be awesome because if you can do that, then the next month when you're, when the new attending comes on, I'm going to be telling them, okay, listen, Joe is fantastic. Uh, Dale really is kind of lazy. And those reputations are very hard to shake. And I tell you what, those kinds of things, that, that same phenomenon persists when you get out. And so if you go into a contract negotiation, you're like, yeah, I really expect to be making a million dollars a year and doing, you know, six weeks of call a year. And then the, uh, the senior guys are like, okay, I bring in $350,000 a year and I have 15 weeks of call a year and I've been doing this for 20 years longer than you, you know, it's going to be very hard to, to, it's going to be very hard to shake that reputation over time. Well, there are 26,000 anesthesiologists in practice right now in this country. And I, I can tell you right now, there are a few anesthesiologists that are so notorious that they are known throughout that entire community. And so most of them work independently in, in the middle of nowhere because no one else will hire them. And I'm not sure how, how many gastroenterologists uh, there are, but I'm sure it's very, very similar. Oh, yeah. There's, you know, uh, I mean you know, the American college of gastro every year is probably 15, 20,000 people. So, 
uh, and that's just for the people that come. So yeah, I'm sure it's the same way, but you know, that kind of thing is, is pervasive. And so now I think there are ways to overcome that. And certainly, you know, I, I think it's important for us to address the flip side and that you don't want to go into a contract negotiation, just prepared to take it on the chin with whatever they, with whatever they offer you, you know, and that's part of being prepared is being able to know what to expect and know what's reasonable to expect and then be able to stand up for what you actually are worth. And I think that there's, there's real value in that. But like I said, it's easy to make a mistake both directions, either asking too much or having too high expectations or too low expectations. And so the more you can be prepared for that going into a negotiation of any kind, the better, the better off you're going to be and the better off your uh, group's going to be. I totally agree. What about focusing on money as your primary driver versus something else? I think that is both very common and a tremendous mistake. Um, so, you know, you know, I, I'm very much a fan of the saying that money can't buy you happiness. I mean, money is can, money can buy you stuff and you should get some stuff, go get you some stuff. I mean, stuff is great. I love stuff. Um, but, but money can't buy happiness. And so for me now I'm, I'm in a position right now where just in my, in my practice, I mean, I'm, I'm a solo pr- practitioner and have been for the last four years. And that has been one of the greatest regrets that I've had the last four years. I mean, I love my team. I love my patients. I still love my work, but man, I miss being part of a great team. And so the group I'm joining this summer is one of the best groups in the country. I mean, if not the best, I mean, they're absolutely phenomenal guys and gals. So, um, I I think that's a very important thing. And, you know, we, when you focus just on the money, I think, I think what you find is that, is that, you can easily get yourself into a situation where the, where the, the daily grind is so intolerable that no amount of money, you know, can make up for it. I mean, you know, how many people do you know that have been in uh, a relationship where like, let's say, you know, have, have been in a marriage that, you know, everybody's, you know, making plenty of money and everyone's, you know, you're living the right, you, live, you got a great house, you got a great car and you just can't stand being around each other. Well, you're going to be miserable. And that's the same thing with the group. I think the things that you need to focus on, if you're trying to pick the right group to join or trying to pick the right, um, you know, place to be, you need to think about lifestyle stuff as I think your most important set of criteria. And so that includes things like what part of the country do you want to live in? I mean, the farthest North I've ever lived is North Carolina because I grew up in Texas and I get cold really easily. So I don't, I don't expect I'll be looking at groups ever in Minnesota and Maine as beautiful as those areas are. I can't stand the cold. Don't don't, don't tell a physician on fire that. (laughs) <laughs> so well you know he's he's welcome to have his space and i'll i'll be in texas so that's just fine oh, that's hilarious. um but but uh you know i i think you need to think about geography think about uh proximity to family i mean if if you really want to be close to your family you need to be looking at areas that allow for easy travel to your family um i think you really need to strongly consider who your partners are so one of the things that um that that I'm writing about, I'm actually uh, working on uh, a, a book, and this is going to be part of it. Is the importance of picking a group or picking a practice, thinking of it the same way that you think about approaching dating for marriage? Yeah, because if, if if you think about if you think about it in terms of of a marriage partnership, I think 
a group partnership is very, very similar. And in many ways, it's actually more important. Um, you know, I, my marriage is, I mean, I, I personally believe marriage is the most important relationship that you have in your life, but it's, I think also reality that you will spend as much or more time with a lot of the people you work with in a 30 year period than you will with the people at home. Um, if you're working full time and so you need to approach it in the same way. So don't just go pick a group based on, Oh, I like their website and you know, they, they have a pretty building. Well, that's, that's pointless. You need to really enjoy the people you're working with. You need to have people that are eager to work together. People that are, are helpful, that are collegial, that really want to build each other up. You know, people that, um, want to mentor you. So if you go join a group and everything's eat what you kill and you know, they don't have time to help you out because they're doing their own thing. That's not a great place to, to start a practice, especially if you're so green that you've, you know, never thought about billing and coding, for example, or you've never thought about, well, how do I pick the right MA or how do I pick the right nurses or how do I hire a good, you know, executive assistant or whatever. So you need someone who's going to mentor you. And I think those things are far more important than money. Um, and then, you know, if you find the right place, you know, and, you know, then, you know, and you, and you're picking a place that has also decent compensation, you know, you're going to end up being happy and making more money in the long run. You know, what's interesting is you have to ask yourself if one job is, is a standout with respect to reimbursement and or income, there's probably a reason for that. So either the working conditions are terrible, the your partners might be terrible, or the culture might be terrible. So, I mean, th- for me, when I see s- super high compensation, um, it always raises an eyebrow, and I'm I'm very very you know. In fact, like I said, the the anesthesia community is so small, I can look and tell you which job is going to be more challenging than another job, and the only way you can get somebody to go there is to pay them. And so the question is, do you want to set yourself up where the only thing you have to look forward to is money? And I think you're, you're spot on. Yeah, I, I think that's a really, really important consideration. And, you know, we don't, I don't, I don't think we pay enough attention to that. And that's definitely something that um, any new graduate or any, anybody who's a, a, in medical school or anybody who's in fellowship or residency, if you're listening to this, pay attention to that. Um, I mean, what Dr. Valtrace just said, I mean, pay attention to those kinds of red flags. And so if something seems too good to be true, it probably is, you know, find, you know, it's amazing. If you talk to some of the junior partners one-on-one or some of the junior employees one-on-one, it's amazing what you can get people to tell you. You know, if you're going and interviewing someplace, see if you can take one of the whoever's their newest hire or whoever's been hired in the last two years, see if you can buy them a cup of coffee or take them to lunch and just pick their brain. You'll be amazed at how quickly people will be willing to just start talking about it. And so if you ask them questions like, what's the best thing about working here? What's the worst thing about working here? You'll be amazed at the kind of stuff that people will tell you like, oh man, let me tell you about the stuff that they do here. They will just unload. Exactly. And I think this is a nice transition into physician burnout. So we're having a, you know, an epidemic of physician burnout, 70, what 70% of physicians are burned out. Is it, is it entirely possible that some of these physicians are burned out because they don't like the people they're working with? They don't like the institution they're working with. They don't like the, the amount of uh, work that they actually have to do uh, for, um, 
a given institution, you know? So these are, these are factors that can potentially lead to physician burnout. Um, but you have a very interesting perspective on physician burnout, um, different than what I've heard elsewhere. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's true. I, so I tend to take the position that while burnout is very real, I think it is a mistake of galactic proportions for physicians to claim that as a mantle and say, yeah, I am burnout or, you know, or I have, I have burnout. Therefore, you know, that is what now defines me. I am a physician who's burnt out. Um, you know, I've seen posts going around here in the last maybe six months or so, um, calling it moral injury, which frankly, I think is just overly dramatic. I mean, you know, and again, I don't mean to make light of, of the situation at all. Believe me, I recognize burnout is a serious epidemic, but if, if that's, if that's as far as you take it and you say, okay, I am burned out, you know, I have just gotten burned out from this job and, and you don't ever address it. You're, you're claiming a mantle of victimhood that I think is putting you in a prison that is partly of your own making. And so one of the things that I talk to my students and my residents about is that it's it's very important to guard against burnout. And part of the way you do that is by not taking on too many things, not trying, not volunteering for every last committee and every last assignment. Learn to say no to some of these things for sure. But you know, you also need to have a way of dealing with it when it happens. So, you know, um, what is your support system? Is your support system exercise. Your support system is being at home, uh, with family. Your support system is, you know, enjoying time with your team. You need a way, uh, to address this issue when it starts to come about. And in general, I would say that the best way to do that is by having a really good, you know, network of friends and colleagues with whom you can be open and vulnerable because I don't know how it is at your facility, but most facilities, administration are really lousy at addressing this. You know, they'll bring in someone to be like, okay, yeah, we need more, you know, we need more yoga. We need more, you know, we need, we need more med- guided meditation. We need more like, <laughs> no, 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 no. We need more support. We need more people. We need more help. We need more, right, right, you know, right. exactly. We all know what we need as physicians, but if, if we just claim the mantle of victim, then I think we've done ourselves and our patients, frankly, a tragic disservice because what happens is we stay in this burnout mode until we just give up and we go part-time, we go for non-clinical work, or we just straight up retire. And then what are, what's happening to our patients at that point? Well, they'll find somebody, but you know, we're, we're causing them to go through unnecessary transitions. We're, you know, limiting the number of doctors in an already, you know, shortage, um, situation. So, um, you know, there are definitely ways to guard against it. And I think we all should. So it's interesting. I, I, I personally went through some burnout and, um, I think when you say victimhood, you are spot on being a victim is a choice. So if you look at, you were in the military, for example, if you would get injured in the military, okay, that wasn't a choice. If somebody shot you, that wasn't a choice, how you react to how you've been shot. That's a choice. So if things happen to you as a physician and you're not happy with the, what happened to you, how you react to it determines what the outcome is going to be. And if you choose to be a victim, then you become a victim. If you choose to take that situation and learn from it and then 
overcome it. And I think you even said this well, become the master of your domain, you know, do something about it. You're not going to get burned out. Um, uh, and I think physicians, one thing that we struggle with is the whole idea that we are important, the whole idea that um, we need significance in our life to be to have any meaning and derive meaning from our life. And sometimes in this new healthcare paradigm, we don't feel significant anymore. We have to do more paperwork than we've ever have to, to do. We have to do more pre-authorizations. So therefore, it's kind of an injury to, to who we are. But again, if you look at it that way and you become a victim, you have, of course you're going to become burnt out. Yeah. One of the things that I, that I tr- um, try very hard to do is anytime I find something that is starting to bother me or things that I don't enjoy is I try to turn that around and embrace it as something that I'm going to find a way to enjoy. So um, I'll give you an example that I give to my students as they're trying to think about what specialty they want to go into. I call it embracing the 1%. And what that what I mean by that is that when you're trying to pick a specialty, um, you need to love 99% of what you're going to be doing in that specialty. And you need to not hate anything. You need to not hate that last 1%. And that's not the same thing. It's a really important distinction. So I'll give you the example from gastroenterology. And so I'm sure for anesthesia, I'd be fascinated to know what you think the 1% is for anesthesia because I've never even thought about it. Um, hmm. but, for, but for GI, the 1% is irritable bowel syndrome. So everybody in gastroenterology enjoys the majority of the stuff. We, we love scoping. We love IBD. You know, mo- most of us like liver. Uh, stuff, you know, and we, we enjoy all the intellectual side of things. We enjoy all the procedures, all that, but irritable bowel syndrome for many people is just the bane of their existence. You know, there are limited therapies. They have patients have severe symptoms at times. It's frustrating because trying to explain to somebody, listen, there's nothing, there's not an organic cause of your symptoms. I mean, it's not imaginary pain, but there's you know, all the tests are normal. There's nothing I can point you to that says, this is your actual issue. And so if IBS is the only thing that you hate about gastroenterology, well, that's, it's really not a a good position for you to be in because you'll see four or five patients with IBS every single day. You will, it will consume your life. And so when it comes to things like when it comes to burnout, I think it's really important to take the same approach. And so if paperwork is the thing that you hate the most, find a way to make it an adventure, find a way to make it a game. I don't mean to, you know, make it sound trite, but, you know, find a way to say, okay, I'm going to figure out how to beat the system. Like I hate coding. I hate coding so much, but one of the things that I decided a long time ago is like, okay, listen, it's going to be part of my life. I I have to just get over this. So I'm going to figure out a way to make this, to make myself the, the most excellent guy with when it comes to coding, I'm going to be so good at this that, you know, that I'm that, you know, it's like me against the world, right? You know, the world's trying to make it so that I can't figure coding out. No way, man, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to beat them. I'm going to be the one who, who takes it uh, in this situation. So I think embracing those difficulties and, and just saying to yourself, I'm going to overcome this. It doesn't matter. I will not be stopped is, is critical. And having that mindset shift is just so important. So what you're saying is I have to start enjoying to go into the endoscopy suite. Is that what you're saying? 
<laughs> well, I think I think I think everybody should enjoy going into the endoscopy. So I'm <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. No, and, and that and that's so true. I think even uh, everybody will have some aspect of their practice that they really don't like, and and you know, for some people, maybe they did choose the wrong specialty, and you're gonna have to dig deep down inside and and face face up to that. And if you don't like it, it's up to you. It's paramount that you do something about it. Um, well, and I, and I, let me address something. I can, I can hear there is, there are people out there listening to this that I can hear you guys rolling your eyes. Exactly. And like, oh, Brent. Oh guys, this is, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what's going on. Listen, we don't, we absolutely don't know everybody's situation. And what I do know though, is I have seen way too many people that have decided that, you know, burnout is what I is. That is what defines me. Now I am a burnt out physician. And unfortunately, no one cares about you as much as you are going to care about yourself. There are people that will help you if you reach out to them. There are people who want to be your support. But if you just decide that burnout is the end of your life, that that is all that there is now, the only one that is going to care about that, frankly, is going to be you. And if you will just decide that that is not going to be the thing that defines you. You will find people that will help you get out of it. Exactly. Uh, interesting story. So this helps put things into perspective. Uh, I, I recently met a gentleman. Okay. He has no arms and he has no legs. He has just nubs. Okay. And he, he's born this way. And he says to himself, everyone says, everybody feels sorry for him. And he's like, people don't like looking at me. He said, but in my life, I'm a, I've accomplished becoming a, a scuba diver. I'm a surfer. Um, I have my own company. I'm a motivational speaker. I'm married and I have a wife. He's like, what I don't understand with people, I have, I have almost nothing and I do everything. And he said, and you all, and he's speaking to a, a big audience, you have everything and you do nothing. And so the point is, it's exact. It's your perspective. It's it's all that matters. Your perspective on on how you're going to take that information and how you're going to process it and what you're going to do with it. And so again, I agree with you. I don't want to belittle it, but at the same time, you know, so many people have so little, and you have so much. You just have to make the best out of it. Couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Well. Brent, that was an amazing conversation. Um, you've inspired me. I think I'm going to go start a program with my uh, SRNAs, my residents, and my nurses. Um, <laughs> do, how often do you do it at your institution? Um, well, I was doing it maybe three, four times a year, but I've uh, started doing it about once every other month with our residents. And so we'll send out what, – what I started doing is I just – I'll send out a poll to the residents and say, what do you guys want to talk about next month? And I'll give them like five or six suggestions Excellent. and then, you know, um, just see what they want to do and we'll go for it. All right. Well, Hey, congratulations on the new job. Um, congratulations on the, on your website. It's, it's amazing. And, uh, I, I, I'm going to do everything in my power to try to get more people to, to your website. And again, once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Brent Lacey for being on the show and, uh, what's your call to action? Where can we get a hold of you? What, what do you want us to do next? So I would say the the best thing to do is uh, is go to www.thescopeofpractice.com 
And on the homepage, you can subscribe. And, uh, and then I'll, I send out a new blog post about once a week. And um, if you're interested in contributing, uh, you know, you can get in touch with me through that. And also on the homepage, uh, if you, if you go to the homepage, you can download my free ebook um, that has, uh, uh, it's got a great uh, student loan management guide. It's got some of these, uh, topics that we've talked about, like uh, contract negotiation and things like that, you'll be able to find there and it's totally free. So just go to the homepage, www.thescopeofpractice.com and you can download the ebook for free and subscribe. And we'd love to have you be part of the community. Excellent. And hey, Brent, I look forward to reading your book and hey, thank you for being on the podcast. Awesome. Hey, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the Physician Negotiator Podcast. For show notes and other resources, please visit thephysiciannegotiator.com.